Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is David Regina. I'm one of the elders here and current seminary student. And I am just as surprised as you are to be preaching. (laughs) I'm probably more surprised than you, actually. So if you would grab your Bible, we're going to be in the letter of Ephesians today, chapter 1. The Pew Bible, if I remember, it's page 1,240. Or if you have your device, pop it open. Because you don't need my opinion. You need God's. You need to know what God says about you, what He says about the world, what He says about heaven, and all the spiritual blessings therein. Amen? Let's begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of Jesus Christ, according to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Before we continue, let's pray together for our time in God's word today. Lord God, thank you that you set blessings over us that are unimaginable and beautiful. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our time together today as your church. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and give us wisdom and insight. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. So we've spent the last five weeks talking about how God interacts with your heart and how he changes you from the inside out. We see in the New Testament and in the Old when God changes a heart, he does a number of things. He changes also the identity and we see even Peter That wasn't his original name. His original name was Simon. But when he encountered Jesus, he's a new person. Therefore, Jesus gives him a new name. Our time today, we're going to be primarily talking about who you are in him. And you'll see, maybe you might have already seen it as we read through, 
There's many, many in him statements. There's going to be five that we're going to be going through because you need to know what your true identity in Christ is because if you have any other identity, it will not satisfy you. It just can't. But your identity in Christ will satisfy you. That's God's promise. Paul also, the author of this book, his original name was Saul, grew up a Jewish man who attended a very high, prominent uh, rabbinical school, and you could see why after he encountered Jesus, so there's almost no one that we see in the New Testament who knows the Old Testament and the law the way that Paul did. But when he encounters Jesus, he uses the word grace over a hundred times in the New Testament. He's the primary user of the word grace in the New Testament, and you could see why, because he was well acquainted with the law and the fact that we need grace, and that Jesus came forth and gave us that. So Paul founded this church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He spent years there. We see the founding of it recorded for us in Acts chapter 18, and then we see some further development in Acts chapter 19 and 20. So it's good for you to see some of the development there. Paul started a school there. He trained missionaries there. He probably, you could probably call it the first seminary. He's writing this letter, though, to that church from a Roman prison because he went out and did missionary work to Rome, and he was in prison there and persecuted for his faith in Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. So, he's certainly thinking of the faces of the individuals that he's baptized and held weddings for and funerals and watched people grow in the Lord. So, when he writes this letter, it's very personal to him. And what does he do? He tells them exactly what it means to be in Christ, in him. He uses it several times. And us pastors love a good acronym. Therefore, you will get one. And I see already some of you, overachievers, that that is not a word. Charis is not a word. It is a word. Don't look it up, though. I see some of you are already reaching for the device. Don't do it please. I'll share it later. Don't worry. Hang in there. I didn't grow up in the church. I came to faith in my 20s. And when I became a Christian, it was interesting to me to see how many different debates go on in the church. And what we see in the book of Ephesians will likely trigger many of you. But if you've ever been to a Bible study, you'll see that some of the church debates that are going on, are you a young earther? Are you an old earther? Do you want hymns or contemporary music, a more liturgical service or a contemporary service? And then there's the dreaded, as soon as anyone brings it up in a Bible study, free will versus predestination in the red corner. Calvinism, the five points weighing 180 pounds with a mean red hook in the red corner. Free will, the five points of Arminianism, with a jab that can hold back a mountain. And then the fights continue and persist. And I don't think that's exactly what God intended when he gave us these blessings. And what's interesting about my preparation with this sermon is that we almost always fight about or debate about, not really fight, but debate about the way God blesses us and how he blesses us. Think of the things I mentioned, worship. That's a blessing. 
It's a blessing that we can come together under God's word, sing songs to him. It's a blessing that we have the earth at all. It was given to us to steward over. And salvation, salvation is a blessing. And we debate the blessings. It's odd, isn't it? I'm not sure that's exactly how God intended it to be. Nevertheless, our text today is all about blessing. We learn about who we are in God's Word, about what He says about Himself, and what He says about who we are in Him. So I would ask, whatever presupposition you have, let's set those aside and let God's Word speak to us today. So before we get into the text, we are an evangelical Presbyterian church, so that's our denomination. Our motto, I think, is beautiful and helpful. It reads, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, truth, in love. Let's get into the text, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Being in Christ means that you are blessed and that God is not holding back any blessing from you that he has willed towards you. Notice what I said there. Not the blessing that you will for yourself. The blessing that he wills for you is what he will give you, and he will give you all of it. Now, the phrase there with every spiritual blessing means all, 100%, and he's not holding back. Now, if you can think of your prayer life and the blessings that you've asked for, Prayers are always answered in these three options God gives. Yes, no, not yet. Now think of a time when you prayed and God said no. And you may have been upset or angry or whatever. Has there ever been a time where God then showed you why he said no? That's happened to me. And boy, you thank him later. You're like, oh boy, glad I didn't do that. I asked you to have me do it. I stamped the in Jesus' name on it, but I didn't get it. And then, thank God, oh, you didn't give me that thing because I didn't need it. That wasn't his will for me. We are indeed a blessed people, but how does he bless us? Let's notice what the text says, that your life, it doesn't say, your life will be perfect. Your life will be without issue. Your bank account will grow endlessly. You will be in shape, good-looking, And you'll get every single thing out of life that you want. That is not what we see out of the text. That is what the world is trying to sell you in a number of ways. So we don't see that here, and we don't see it anywhere really in the Bible. But unfortunately, the word has been hijacked, even sometimes in the church, to mean something that it does not mean in God's word. What we do see is far better than any health, wealth, prosperity lie we see you, holy and blameless before God. And we see that you are holy and blameless before the foundation of the earth was even laid. He set you in that way in his eyes. Now, how does that work? Genesis chapter 1 reads, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and before that, before the foundation of the earth existed, before human history, God chose that you would follow Christ. To be in him, that is, in Christ. How can this be? 
How could God choose me before the founding of the world? Well, Psalm 139 helps us, and there are various Old Testament texts that I'll bring up to show you that this is indeed the case. Psalm 139 reads in verses 13 through 16, For you formed my inmost being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God doesn't just know you in the sense that you know someone near you or maybe even very near and dear to you, close to you. He knows you in a particular way. Look at the care God takes when he creates you. He formed your innermost being and knitted you together. Now, I know nothing about knitting other than my wife did it for a little while, and we have some baby blankets and scarves and things like that. The one thing I do remember is one winter, I think my second born was just born, and we had a wood stove at our old house, and it was nice and cozy, and she just knitted all the time. She crocheted all the time, and too much, actually, because she ended up with carpal tunnel in her wrist and needed a brace and ended up injured. But you then look at the end product of the, all that time, you see an intentional product. You see something that the person who made it saw what the end would look like and put it together just so to get it to that piece. Now, think of anything that is handcrafted. Handcrafted is always best. We almost always know that, that I don't want something that came cranked out of a machine. I don't want something that got stamped somewhere. I want what's handcrafted. And what's more expensive, the handcrafted item or the thing that cranked out of a machine? It's always the handcrafted item. And that's the care that God took when he created you. Now, the world will bump heads with our worldview. Our view is that we're created in the image and likeness of God. The world says you are the result of a cosmic accident. An explosion took place. They don't know how or why or when. They end up calling it a miracle eventually when they get logically back to it. But they'll end up saying that you have no intrinsic value. You are time plus matter plus chance. That's not what God's Word says. Over and over, God's Word says that you were intended for a purpose and a plan. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says that the Lord God formed the man of the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I uh, ordained you as prophet to the nations. Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord is God, it is he who made us. Isaiah 43, 21, this people I have formed for myself, and they shall show my praise. Job 33, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isaiah 43, 21, they shall show my praise, for I formed them. And over and over, I could, we could get right into the 11 o'clock service talking about how God made you for a purpose and a plan. Now, why exactly would he choose someone like you? 
After all, he knows the future. He knows you will not follow him. He knows that you will rebel. You will sin. You will fall. He is well aware. He's not surprised when you sin. But he chose you anyway, not because of how good you are. Did you think you're a Christian because of your performance, church? Did you think you're a Christian because you made the right option or you did something for him that he saw good in you? It's his goodness, not our own. And we see how this works out in our next letter, adopted. You'll see that each point builds upon the next. Chosen, adopted. You were chosen to be adopted as sons and daughters. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, sorry, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved Being in Christ means that you are blessed because God loves you. It's in his loving character to bring you into his kingdom, his place, and bring you back to himself through Christ. Since we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we could never reach the heights. We could never pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow reach up to him. What we needed was a savior, a rescuer. Amen? John chapter 14, 6 says, and this is Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to me, to the Father, except through me. You have sinned. God is well aware of it, and he adopts you anyway into his family through Jesus, who also said that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The blessing of adoption is that God only looks upon you as a son or a daughter. That is your identity, a child of God. And God does this work in us to the praise of his glorious grace. His glorious grace is what makes all the difference. That's why Paul never stops talking about grace, and we ought to do the same. I wrote this down, this uh, definition of what grace is. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, free an unconditional love of God towards his children for the free gifting and blessing of redemption leading to salvation through Christ. This leads us to how he does this in our redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. A well-known quote is that Jesus didn't come to earth to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. You are adopted as children of God through this redemption. You require a Savior because you've sinned. And in the state of that sin, if you were to die, you'd be eternally separated from him. But for the grace of God was lavished upon you, he would not allow it. The riches of his grace cannot be earned. God's grace is his to freely give, and it's his grace that restores us to him. But his grace also restores everything. And this is awesome in verse 10 to me. The purpose is to unite all things in him. You are reconciled to heaven. You're also reconciled to one another. And united in Christ by the forgiveness of your sins, and we wait for the day where Christ unites all things for all time. 
And how he does this, this unity in all time, is that we are given an inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. One of the great hopes of believers is that God in Christ works out all things according to his will. Not your will, his will. And his will is that you would be with him. Your inheritance is in fact him. Heaven would not be heaven without him. And how that works is that you get to enjoy now a taste of heaven on earth being in Christ and there's a number of ways that we do that. We enjoy heaven being with uh, one another, the fellowship of the saints, the encouragement of one another. And that's why it's important that your faith life doesn't begin the minute you walk into church on a Sunday and end when I say amen at the last prayer. Your faith life is meant to be an everyday occurrence and this inheritance is not just personal, it's corporate. The church gains this inheritance. We're here together to worship God. We're here to sing His praise together, encourage one another, and I hear there's food. I heard there's food. Yeah. Isn't it nice? Sharing a meal together is a beautiful thing. Another inheritance you receive is that you are heaven-bound. You're closer and closer with every moment to that end, to that goal, planet Earth is a temporary place where you live, not our permanent one, not our, our eternal home. The Westminster larger catechism, the word catechism means the question, questioning. It's a work that is helpful for us to understand. It's a very practical uh, work that was done earlier in uh, church history where there's a series of questions, and the one question that I picked is question number 90 because I feel like it's helpful for us. What will happen to the righteous on the judgment day? One of the great debates. Judgment day is the day Christ, this is the response or a part of it, that when Christ returns as he said he would, we will be received into heaven and there we will be completely and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with unimaginable joy and made perfectly holy and happy in body and soul in the vast company of each other and the holy angels. Amen? Debate over. God's going to do it because he said he'll do it. He'll bring you home. And if you're in Christ, when you're in heaven with the Lord, the power of sin over your life will be no more. You're just passing through. It's like a road trip. And I, I might have just triggered some of you with PTSD for some of the lack of direction following us men refuse to ask for. But I've always, I've really had a tough time with the quote that life is about the journey, not the destination. I don't like that. So, if you think about a road trip, though, the, even the people that say that, they set the destination on their GPS, and they're on a mission. And then if there's a pit stop or a detour, you see them get pretty frustrated pretty quick. Nevertheless, we have tasted heaven, and we will bump heads against this world 
until we have heaven in its fullness. How does he keep us? He keeps us sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're missing a slide. Okay? If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit does the work in keeping you in Christ. Now, that is a glorious truth. You, if you've been following Christ for more than five minutes, know that you will not follow Him perfectly. And I would encourage you, if someone says they do follow Him perfectly, run the other way and get far away from that person because they're a liar. If you're all honest with yourselves, you and I both know that you will sin, you will fall, you will fail. But God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, has sealed you and given you this guarantee that He will not let you go. And how this works out in a practical way in His love for us through the Holy Spirit is through a term called sanctification where the lifelong process of the Holy Spirit making you more and more like Christ with every day. Therefore, when you sin, I'm not saying if, it is when you sin, when you fail, that will not define you. God's grace will define you. God's forgiveness will define you, not your failure. Your failure will not define you. God will not allow it. So when you do sin, the Holy Spirit convicts you and gives you the ability to turn and reorient yourself back to God in repentance And in doing so, making you more and more like Christ. And in Christ, His grace is sufficient for you, for His power is made perfect in weakness. So when you sin, there is no reason to hide. Come clean to God, and sometimes others is necessary. God will find you, after all, if you try to hide. It's like if you are like me, I have young kids, I know when they do wrong, and I'll find them, and we'll talk about it. And he finds you where you are and guarantees your, inherit- your inheritance in heaven, and he refuses to let you go like the good father he is. So in a, in a fun coincidence, this word, uh, charis, that I mentioned earlier, the acronym here, that you are chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted as sons and daughters, redeemed by the forgiveness of your sins, that you are an inheritor of the heavenly things and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This word charis is a word. It's just a Welch word. I I could have let off with that. Maybe you would have figured it out. Many people name their children charis. It means grace. It's derived from the Greek word Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. God has given you His charis. He's given you His grace. You and I in Christ have been given a gift, a new identity in Christ, and it's all because of His grace towards His children. Later in the letter, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So what about you? So what, Dave? What does this all mean to me? Well, what about you? How do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself the way that God identifies you, as a chosen one, as an adopted son or daughter, 
as a redeemed one forgiven, all your sins forgiven, an inheritor of heaven and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The world is begging you to pick sides. We see, I feel like maybe in the last several years, maybe I'm just paying attention more, there's so many lines in the sand. Are you on this side of this issue or are you on that side of the issue? Because of your identity in Christ, I would urge you to not bite. Your identity in Christ is far more valuable than any identity the world will ever try to give you, and the world is spending plenty of time trying to make you pick a side, spend your time and money to give you a certain status, a certain identity that in the end will not satisfy you because you have tasted heaven. You can only be satisfied in His identity. Amen? As we prepare for communion, I want to pray for us, and I pray that God would do a work in you that He would make you consider the different identities that you've maybe gone in and out of or pursuing now. I feel like if we started talking about your identity on social media, we'd be here right up until the 11 o'clock service. So let's do that now. Let's come to him in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father God, your word tells us who we are in the light of how good you are towards your children, towards us. That by an act of grace that we are chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted as sons and daughters, redeemed by the forgiveness of all of our sins, inheritors of every heavenly blessing and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you now come and stir in our hearts and reveal to us the ways that our self-identity doesn't line up with how you see us. And Lord, thank you that when you do see us, you see a new person, a new heart, and a new identity. Your word tells us that the old has passed and the new has come. And Lord, I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to respond, to respond in worship because we are indeed your children. And we thank you for this. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.